Before we start the show, if you want more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff or visit postcoronastocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at at BMB21. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID-19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. All right, welcome to Stock Talking. Today on the podcast, we have another awesome guest I've been looking forward to having for a long time. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I know nothing about real estate. And my friend Max Widner has works, currently works for Zillow and does a ton of stuff for them. Prior to that, was at Zillow and EF, so, or sorry, yeah, Zaxter and EF, so has done everything from bike sharing to educational tours. Uh, terrific friend, terrific business guy, and uh, yeah, awesome to have you on the show, buddy. Thanks, man. I'm, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Cool. So I want to start off by actually talking about your bio a bit. So you have worked at a ton of different companies in some very different industries, very different size companies, um, and now being at Zillow, especially when COVID-19 has hit and changed the whole real estate market. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a bit just about how your experiences have been so different at these different companies and, and what it's been like being at a huge company like Zillow that's kind of center of the real estate storm during COVID-19. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess I, I think the easiest way to, to think about it is I, I was at a startup before this, which was a, a bike share startup out of Cambridge called Zagster. And, and the the short story is Zagster kind of predated the micro transit wave you see in every city now. So if you go to Boston or New York or Chicago, you have these massive bike share systems. And they're actually pretty forward thinking. They're a little bit, um, I think they're going to become more of a mainstay, especially as cities adapt. And you might see less of a traditional commute and more of a focus on what's called last mile transportation, which is primarily bike share. But so Zagster was built around bringing the boutique version of this to smaller entities, whether that's a college, whether that's a smaller, medium-sized city, or whether that's a corporate campus. But basically, we were in the very early stages and just kind of fighting it one day at a time to survive, which I think for anyone who works at a startup knows that your funding and your, your ability to breathe is not this endless supply of like you know, safety net, you're kind of going one day at a time. So for me, pivoting to a company like Zillow, um, which quite frankly has a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, firepower, um, it's a completely different vibe and it's a completely different safety net, a completely different message. And it's, uh, especially right now, I'm appreciating that a lot more. Definitely. I mean, Zillow now, as we speak, is $10.5 billion market cap. I've, the only company I've worked for that's been that big was Wells Fargo right out of college, but the investment banking experience is entirely different than any job I've had since then. So yeah, talk a bit about being at a company, not only that big, but I think Zillow does so many different things, right? Like yeah, the, the Zillow kind of home offerings and uh, what they do with real estate agents and mortgages. I mean, there's any number of different businesses. So it must be really exciting being at such a huge company that does so many different things. 
Totally. Yeah. So, so I think um, what's, what's exciting for me about Zillow and it's the first time I've really experienced this in a company is their, their vision for the future is so big. Meaning like the swing that Zillow is taking is legitimately trying to transform real estate as we know it. Right. And you massively disrupt the home buying process. So you're talking about something housing shelter, right? Like, like living, where do you sleep? Where do you live? That's something every single person touches, right? That no one's, no one's impervious to that. No one's not involved with that. Okay. Like there are people right now who don't use Amazon, right? There's people, there are people right now who don't have an internet connection. Everyone for the most part uh, lives somewhere, right? So, so what Zillow is trying to do is take everything you kind of know about the real estate transaction and the process of buying and selling and renting and flip that on its head a little bit. So, so it's exciting to be a part of that because they're not thinking a year or two ahead. Zillow's thinking 10, 15, 20 years. What is the, what is the real estate process going to look like and how is it going to be disrupted from what it is now? So, you know, seeing that, that moonshot vision and being a part of it every day is, is a pretty exciting thing to be part of. Definitely. Just in one of the investor decks, I saw this quote that really caught my eye. So Zillow's stated mission is to build the largest, most trusted and vibrant home-related marketplace in the world. Right? Mm-hmm. Just reading that, that, that's pretty inspiring, just the scope of, of what you guys are trying to do right now. Um, okay. And I, I totally hear what you're saying too on uh, the company being very future-focused, right? Um, I think among Wall Street analysts and when I've seen Zillow and business news, what's always struck me is the the big strategy change that took place a couple of years ago really caused a lot of consternation on Wall Street. And, and what I'm talking about, of course, is Zillow's decision to actually be in the market of owning homes and then selling them, which is something they hadn't done prior to that. So I, I think oh, there's a lot of different opinions on that. So I just wanted to get your take on that decision and uh how that's treated at the company, right? Because I think being in the business of owning real estate and then selling it and doing the, these things that Zillow does where they know the, the price of something and are willing to make a really quick transaction uh, feels pretty revolutionary. Yeah, so, so just to give a quick background on it, Zillow's initial entry place into the market was purely as this aggregate tool that you could see how much your home was worth, right? That revolutionary idea that every single homeowner or basically every single person out there could pull up Zillow. And now all of a sudden they have an indication of how much a specific home is worth and who doesn't want to look at that, right? Because if you, if you're living in a neighborhood, you want to know how much your neighbor's house is worth. If you have a buddy who just bought a house, you want to know how much their house is worth. It's kind of instinctive as a human being to feel that competitive nature and a home buying process is seen as such a rite of passage in our culture, right? So like, you know, what do people post Instagram pictures of? Their weddings, their baptisms, and the first time they buy a home, right? So there's this kind of innate, like, desire in everyone to want more information on that, not just for them, but for what other people are doing too. Um, what that did, whether it was intentional or not, is it drew a massive, massive audience to Zillow. So basically, we heard a, a, a review to data point the other day that Zillow has more unique monthly users right now than Netflix does. Okay, so like let that sink in for a second, more than Netflix does. And now granted, not everyone's watching a series or spending three or four hours, but people are going on Zillow and they're looking at homes. 
So the idea is you are positioning yourself to attract a massive, massive, massive audience. And therefore, you can leverage that and you can basically own the marketplace. And what I mean by that is the real estate transaction, anyone in real estate will tell you it's not just buying and selling. There's title, there's mortgage, there's insurance plays and escrow and maintenance and new construction. And if you want to buy a home and redesign your bathroom, you're going to call the local contractor. So if you think about Zillow, it's kind of this flywheel of multiple services, multiple industries that have all been very fragmented, right? Most people I know who are fairly intelligent people still act and still feel like the housing, the home buying process is a clunky process, right? Like when you, let me ask you a question. When you think about the home buying process, what does that elicit in you? Do you feel confident that you can just coast through that or does that freak you out a little bit? Massive anxiety. In right. fact, like I, I think the few times I've pursued it, the, as far as I've got is clicking around Zillow, looking at prices, setting some alerts and letting it be. So uh, right. once it gets to the part of actually talking to real estate agents, mm-hmm. that's where I chicken out. Right. And you're a smart guy. You're an educated dude and it's intimidating. And so this is not, you're not alone in that, right? This is something that every single person deals with. Oh, and it so happens to be the largest investment most people are making in their lifetime full stop. So what Zillow is really striving to do is to simplify that process on a massive scale and provide a seamless consumer experience to do so. Um, That's another way you can think about the mission. How do you make this just easier and more consumer friendly and more accessible in general? And by the very nature of doing that, you're going to attract more audience every single day. And you're going to get a bigger piece of the flywheel of all those ancillary services that are spinning out. So I know that was kind of a lofty answer, but I hope that that helps you uh, contextualize it a little bit. No, it doesn't. I, I skipped all of that background because the decision I alluded to to actually be in the home ownership market um, and have inventory and then buy houses and sell houses far, far was after all the amazing uh, flywheel construction related events you mentioned, right? So. I, I think the only way that you would be able to do something like that with confidence is if you had built that flywheel before. Uh, so definitely appreciate the the context on that. But I do want to vi- revisit this question of, uh, so Zillow builds this amazing flywheel. It kind of becomes the one-stop shop for everything home buyer related, whether it's uh, mortgages or you know, touching up your home or, or looking around, setting alerts, getting market intel, that type of thing. And then they, they kind of do this new business model um, that's a, a very market change. It's lower margin, higher risk, which is uh, you know, buying homes from sellers and then selling them. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit and why the flywheel may be an extension of that, why it may not. Yeah, um, but yeah this is the, the big topic that I feel like when um, like Wall Street focuses on Zillow, they tend to hone in on this thing, which maybe be un- might be unfair, but at yeah. least wanted to give it a proper attention. Yeah, no, sure, sure thing, and it's kind of the uh, the main talking point that we're that we're getting right now too from our clients and people who are working with Zillow. But basically, what you're referring to is what we're what we're alluding to as Zillow 2.0, and part of Zillow 2.0 is the the second wave of the company's mission, but it's getting involved in home buying, and so the buzzword is i buying or the, what is the i buyer model, and in a really simplified way of putting it, the I buying model means that if you're a homeowner, you can 
get an offer from Zillow basically on demand and close your house basically on demand, sell your house on demand. Um, why this is such a massive disruption is because the home, the home selling process oftentimes is a clunky, arduous, complicated process. Meaning if you want to sell your home in a market, like perfect example is right now when COVID's impacting quite a lot of people, they don't want uh, an open house. They don't want people trudging through their house. Maybe they just had one of their parents get sick and they have to move in the next two weeks, right? Maybe there's an issue with their kids can't go back to school and one of the parents just got laid off. So they have to sell that home fast. Well, previously in real estate, you have to go through an agent and you have to have a traditional open house and that's going to take time and you have to weigh a couple offers now and you're not sure if you should hold out or if you shouldn't hold out. Some people, they just want to move and moving has become this, you know, moving in this, in the States has been correlated with this massive life changing process. You're moving to a whole new chapter of your life. It's a, you do it two, three, four, five times, maybe in the course of your lifetime, but every time you do it, it's a huge deal. That's because the home selling and home buying process is such a big deal right now, right? What Zillow's trying to do is make that not a big deal. <laughs> and you know, that's kind of the easiest way to put it. They're trying to make that so you can get an offer from Zillow and yeah, it's going to be a little bit less than you probably would on the open market, but you're going to have speed and efficiency and you're going to be able to call your shots and determine when you close. And giving the, giving the consumer, the, the, the person who's selling that type of leeway um, is pretty disruptive. And, and it's something that people are taking a long time to warm up to. But I do believe firmly that we're going to look back at this in you know, five, 10 years and, and not really be able to understand why people used to do it any other way. I like the way you framed it as this being a response to the anxiety and friction that surrounds buying and selling. And I think it's, it's Zillow offers, right? Which is the service we're talking about where Zillow will offer to buy your house. Um, but before we get to that, uh, which I, I want to spend some time on, I totally skipped asking what you do for Zillow. So I know you're in a group um, called Premier Broker. So uh, for I, I actually only remember a little bit of what you told me. So I'd love to hear more about what you do and also for the listeners, just an overview of, um, of what you're doing. Yeah, sure thing. So um, a question I get a lot is like, how does Zillow make money? Because it's a free app, right? You don't, you're, not paying, you're not paying a $10 subscription fee to use Zillow. So the way that Zillow makes money is that we have partners, which is the real estate community, real estate professionals, who basically pay Zillow to have a presence um, and to go back to your conversation on Sunday to have an online advertising presence on Zillow. So if you're a real estate agent and there are hundreds of thousands of real estate agents in the country, maybe you operate in Cambridge or you operate in Somerville and you want to pick up buyers, you want to pick up traffic that's coming through that market, you pay Zillow to have a presence in that zip code. Meaning that if I'm a, if I'm a buyer and I'm looking in Cambridge or Somerville, well, Ben, if you're an agent, you're going to come up as someone I can work with. So if I see a home I really like, I can say, hey, I want, to, I want to connect and speak with an agent. I want to have a conversation with someone because I'm really excited about this house. Well, now you get that phone call. 
So Zillow has basically taken the captured the buyer, captured the consumer, and sent it to you because you're paying to advertise in that market. Right? Does that make sense? Yep. Keep going. So what I focus on is um, enterprise level partnerships. So basically, I work with companies, and in the real estate world, that means brokerages. I work with uh, Remaxes of the world, Century 21s, Coldwell Bankers, Independents, and basically help them come up with an enterprise strategy so that they're building the, the right market presence on Zillow to leverage what we're doing. So they're capturing buyers who are coming from our site. And we're working those deals together to strategically place them in the markets that are going to help their business. How do you figure that out? Meaning, you, know, you want to figure out how they best can leverage the available markets, where they should have a presence. What, what data would you typically use to lead them in the right direction? Yeah, so it, it all depends on what their goals are. So like anyone who's familiar with a sales role um, or an enterprise sales role, you want to find out what are they trying to do as a business, right? Are they trying to um, recruit 15 more people to come on board in the next six months? Are they trying to expand their market share into a couple zip, zip codes that they were not initially in? Or are they trying to stomp on the competition and basically say, look, we want to become the market dominant player here. And so you find out those things and then we can help them. So we can say, look, you know, here's an example where in Bristol County, Massachusetts, uh, there's a bunch of market share that you can pick up. So you can capture this and we're going to send a bunch of buyers to your brokerage from Zillow that you would not have picked up otherwise. Um, people who are coming to Zillow first. And another way to look at this too, Ben, is like an easy analogy to think about is the travel industry. Okay. So prior to Airbnb, prior to Expedia and Orbitz and Travelocity and all these aggregate internet sites, if you wanted to plan a vacation, you had to go sit down with your local travel agent, right? That's what you did. You, you went down to Main Street and you talked about Sandals or Turks and Caicos and they knew all the information. They had a connection with the airlines. They had a connection with the resorts. They understood the, they basically owned exposure to anything you wanted to do. And the same was true for real estate, right? A while back, if you wanted to find out what homes were for sale and what the market looked like and, uh, you know, where is it a hot area to buy, you had to sit down with a real estate agent. The information was basically gated, okay? So what Zillow's done in the same way that these travel companies have done is you've, you've democratized that information, basically. You've made it publicly available. So real estate professionals now are a bit more dependent on saying, look, I have to go where my buyer is to capture them because they're not coming to me organically anymore. Yeah, certainly in today's environment, they're not physically going to come to you because they can't, right? <laughs> like everyone is in deep quarantine right now. So I definitely wanted to spend some of this conversation talking about how your day-to-day -day has changed as a result of the physical constraints placed in our world. People can't travel, people can't go into a real estate agency. So it would almost seem that Zillow is probably seeing more traffic nowadays. Yeah, I think there's this, there's this interesting tone in our company right now where everyone's kind of cautiously reflecting on this and thinking to themselves, wait a second, did 
did the last two or three months just accelerate things by two or three years in the direction we thought they were going to go? Meaning all of a sudden now you have agents, real estate agents, real estate professionals who can only show a home virtually, can only show a home by capturing someone online that they met and now they're doing a virtual tour. Whereas before that was never an option. They would meet them in person, right? But now all of a sudden the, the, the game has shifted a little bit. So what can you still do as a buyer? Well, you can certainly still browse Zillow. You can certainly still take a look at a home in a, th- in a 3D tour capacity on Zillow. So more and more people are depending on this and no longer as a real estate professional can you rely on your same playbook. Now, there's people out there who would probably disagree who have been real estate agents for a long time, but the way we see it is this is where the industry is headed, full stop, and you either become a part of it or or you're not going to be able to retain the market share you once had. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I I wanted to throw out one stat that was in Zillow's last quarterly call. So management or Rich Barton specifically says adoption is accelerating. Pages use Zillow's proprietary tech to create 525% more 3D home tours in April than in February. I've actually never taken a 3D home tour. So I'd, I'd love for you to describe what that is and why people use it so much. I suppose it does sound rather obvious, but, but what is that experience actually like? Yeah, so a 3D home tour is basically like you have a interactive uh, kind of photo walkthrough of a home where you can feel like from your cell phone or from your, your desktop, you're actually touring a house and you're seeing the different rooms and you're able to control the mouse and walk around the hallways and take a look at the different views. Um, So that's one avenue that a lot of people are taking. But what also people are doing is they're actually just doing video tours with agents now. So this is something that we had seen coming for a while where, you know, the same idea that if you have to go to the doctor's office, you can do telemedicine now. You don't actually have to sit in the doctor's office. We think more and more people are going to take virtual tours. It doesn't mean they're going to buy the house after seeing a virtual tour, but why would you go see a home if you can take a virtual tour first to decide whether or not you really want one or you really want to go see it? So we see the paradigm shifting in that, in that sense for sure. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question about intent. Does taking a 3D tour signal that there's going to be a purchase in the, in the near future? So I've always wondered... You know, looking at this call and thinking about the COVID environment, it does seem like home prices actually aren't down that much from various data I've seen. I've heard single digit percentage, certainly nowhere near what we saw in 2008, 2009. And, and the amount of interest uh, that's being indicated on this call it is, feels pretty substantial. It actually feels like your company is doing quite well, despite the, the pretty sharp economic downturn. So I'd love to get take your temperature on um, what you think this interest actually signals. Is it people just clicking around or do you think there's actually real pent up demand to buy homes right now? Yeah, so, so it's, an in, it's an interesting point that I think whoever you talk to is going to give you a pretty different outlook on this because no one has a crystal ball quite yet. The last couple of weeks seem as if the real estate market has proven way more resilient than a lot of people would think. Meaning, yes, there was a little bit of dip, March in particular and early April, um, transactions were down quite a bit, but that had a lot to do with people having to stay at home. I think the big question now is, are you looking at a 
basically dead cap bounce with the real estate market that's going to last a month or two or three before shit starts to hit the fan? Or did we make it through the worst part? Now, I'm, I'm, a, I'm being cautious here because I tend to think more that the home buying market reflects consumer confidence and it reflects basically consumer spending, right? So if, if people are out of work and if people are, are cash poor, maybe that hasn't happened yet, but that's going to happen, right? So you're going to see that, that turnaround. I do think an interesting kind of side story here is you're, you're seeing a lot of strange activity in the housing market. So you're seeing a lot of people move out of cities and reach out to agents who are, in, who are in suburbs or reach out to areas that are typically vacation areas or summer areas because they don't want to be stuck in Boston or New York or Chicago in a 500 square foot apartment that costs $3,000 when there's no restaurants or bars or, or baseball games happening. Um, so I think it's a little bit too early to tell is probably the, the most honest answer I can give you. Traffic is up though. So Zillow traffic year over year is higher than it has been. What that means is more and more people are active and they're looking. And what we can probably trace that to is, you know, if you're sitting at your home all day now and you're confined to home all day now, well, maybe there's stuff about your house you don't like. And maybe there's, uh, you know, new ideas you have about where you could live. Or maybe you're someone like the entire staff of Twitter who just found out they do not have to return to an office anymore, period. Right, so if you're living in San Francisco, and you're paying forty-five hundred dollars for a, a two-bedroom apartment, well, why are you paying that now? Right, like what? What's your incentive to stay there? Um, so again, I think I think I'm really, really intrigued to see what happens both with the housing market, but also with the urban landscape. Um, what does this do to the integrity of the the big cities in the country? What does it do to those ancillary markets? Like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated to just watch this unfold because I don't think anyone quite knows <laughs> what's going to happen. And, and it's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, I'm super excited as well. Uh, I mean, part of me thinks that there really could be a V-shaped recovery and that there's a huge amount of pent-up demand and we may not actually see as big a dip in real estate or stocks as some people are projecting. Another side of me fears an, an imminent mortgage crisis and a lot of downside pressure that just naturally happens as a result of having you know 14% unemployment certainly could go higher. To, to tie this back to where this conversation was going earlier, uh, knowing all these factors and, and having all this uncertainty, it's really interesting to me that Zillow can still confidently project a price and offer a, a seller a price and feel confident. Um, taking that home and and having it be uh, in inventory for who knows how long, um, you know, for like an individual, this would probably feel like a huge risk because if you were going to essentially be flipping a home, you would wonder about how much volatility you're going to see in COVID, like who is, who the buyers are, who the sellers are. Um, so yeah, I guess my question is like, in terms of all that uncertainty, we just ta- we just talked about. Um, if you're an investor in Zillow, how can you feel confident about Zillow offers knowing that it's difficult to project where home prices are going to be a week from now, a month from now, a year from now? So, yeah. So, so my, my first, um, my first take on that is if you're an investor in Zillow, you don't have to worry too much about Zillow offers right now because the bulk of what we're doing is contingent on 
premier agent advertising, right? So literally the, the, the war chest of Zillow, the bulk of the ammunition moving forward comes from real estate professionals paying Zillow because they need to be on there. Okay. So that's, that's really who the, that's who the client is ultimately. Zillow talks about the consumer quite a bit. So you talk about the consumer as the home buyer. Sure. That's the consumer who's coming on Zillow. Who's paying Zillow? It's the real estate professional. Yeah. I've heard this analogy with Facebook that like the, uh, the actual client are the ad companies or companies uh, serving ads and the customer is the user of Facebook who they make no money off of. Right. Parallel. Yeah. So exactly. And it's, it's interesting being in a sales position in a business development position when you're basically selling to a partner who's not the North star of the company. You see what I'm saying? And I think, um, I think Facebook and Google have the exact same, you know, basic situation set up where our partners, we strategically call them partners because they're, you know, our advertising partners, who are we deciding to do business with? Who's going to, who's going to have a presence on, on Zillow. But the consumer is the, is the free home buyer. They're the person who's coming to our site and bouncing around. So I think the state of the business is very healthy in terms of the demand, the high demand from the real estate community needing to be on there. Um, I think you're going to see one thing that's, that's, I think, absolutely certain, I'm absolutely certain about is you're going to see a lot of movement around the country because of what's happening with this virus. So more and more people who are not thinking about whether or not they were moving two or three months ago are now all of a sudden thinking about moving. And what is good for Zillow in any economic environment is people who are moving, <laughs> you know, right? So if you have more people who are thinking about that, that bodes better for the company. And I think you're seeing that um, in investor confidence as well. Yeah, I think this is a really good segue for something I want to talk to you about, which is basically employee behavior as a result of, of work changes, which could trickle, trigger all the way down to consumer behavior in, in terms of how we move and, and how we live, right? Because if you can work from home for an unlimited amount of time, you're definitely going to be tempted to, to live somewhere different because you no longer have to worry about the commute. Uh, like you, I thought the Twitter announcement, this, I think it might have been today, actually, was, was super interesting, right? The work from home indefinitely. And I'm sure they won't be the last company to do that. Uh, so, yeah, what, what's your take on how the work from home movement is going to affect real estate? I know that seems like a tenuous connection, but it does actually seem like if you can work anywhere, you're likely to buy homes just about anywhere. Totally. I, I think, um, I think this, is a, this is a tip of the iceberg topic that you could spend five or six hours discussing because the ripples of it are so massive, right? Like first and foremost, I think about a, a company like Zillow and, and just to paint the picture for you, about five or six, about, about eight or nine weeks ago, we moved into a brand new office on Broadway close to the Flatiron building in Manhattan. And you're talking about a state of the art office, um, kegs of beer, iced coffee, state-of-the-art setup, um, you know, over 100 people on the same floor built up into teams, open, open floor concept. And I was reading an article uh, a couple of days ago. They were saying, actually, one of the worst environments for this virus is an open-faced office where you have a bunch of people on a, on a phone because you have 
air that's not recycled and you have a bunch of people speaking and basically you're creating this petri dish of recycled air and basically it's the worst thing you can do. So I think people are starting to come to grips with the fact that we're not going back, meaning not just like literally, but figuratively too. Like we're not even returning to the office. It's not going to resemble what the office was. I think you're seeing a crazy disruption in the layout of what do we know as a work office, right? What do we know as a, as a typical work week? It's all changing because companies are not going to be able to cram people like that from a liability standpoint. And I think from a, um, again, covering their own ass, you, you just can't do it. So Zillow made the announcement that everyone's working from home with the option through January 1st, 21, at least, um, that could be extended. We'll see if, we'll see if there's a, a, a Twitter um, type of an announcement made down the road. It wouldn't surprise me. But I think what's interesting about it is you're going to see, you know, the core structure of day-to-day life potentially change because of this. And I'm not trying to be over dramatic with that, but if you think about it, like, you know, Ben, you're 29, 30, right? Um, and I, I am as well. I'm 30 years old. I think about the majority of my friends live in cities because they're closer to commute, because they're closer to the office. And because of that, because you have a, a, a huge group of people allocated in a small city, it's why cities are what they are. It's why you have a great restaurant scene and an art scene and great culture, right? I think when you remove the office requirement, that's kind of like taking the pin out of the hot air balloon. Right, like all of a sudden, what's the reason you're paying that rent if all of the bells and whistles and ornaments of, of living in the city are all of a sudden not available anymore? So not just work, but well, the restaurants that you go eat at, they're closed. Right? The whole economy that exists because of that office culture, that's gone. So all of a sudden now the ripples of this thing can get really, really interesting. And I think you're gonna start to see fragments of that this fall for sure. Yeah, you had sent me a really interesting article about how the work from home movement is affecting different companies and Zillow is one of the companies highlighted. So I think the number was two to 4% were work from home prior to COVID and obviously now it's 100%. Uh, Your CEO said that people are more productive than ever Um, and I've heard similar management groups and and CEOs say the same thing. So unless you think people are, are being disingenuous, which I don't like, I personally think I've seen myself be more productive from home. I've seen people from my company be equally productive. It's difficult to justify why paying rent for a, a very swanky office space would have a high return on investment. Right. So I, I, I like the, what you, the analogy you made with pulling the pin out, right? Because once you've acknowledged that people can be equally high or higher productivity work from home, you start to question why office space is even necessary. Right. And I think, I think we're living like, so I've been, I've been reflecting a lot on like what we're experiencing right now. And as you know, let's call it what it is. It's scary and it's uncertain. And I think nobody knows how this is going to play out. But one of the reasons that there's almost this weird um, excitement, and I don't know if that's the right word, but I'll just go with it. There's this, there's this weird feeling of excitement right now that like we're in the process of societal norms changing in real time. Meaning like two months ago, it was 
commonplace that you'd get up and you'd take the train to the office and you'd spend nine to five behind a desk with seven or eight other teammates. And that would be the work day, right? I think that we're going to come out of this and that's going to seem bizarre. Like why would a company do that right now that we've basically shown for the most part that if you're the type of company that can afford and, and basically deal with having your workforce work from home, you think they're going to come back in full force to work in the office nine to five Monday through Friday? Like I don't see that happening anywhere. And so I think the return to normal is uh, it's kind of like a boat that's slowly leaving the dock and it's getting further and further into the mist as we go into every day here. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that specifically because I would think being in sales, you're used to actually being on site, visiting clients, giving presentations, shaking hands, developing personal relationships that could really only come from being in the same physical space as people. So are you giving presentations and, and talking to people virtually now? Is that, do you think that's impacting your ability to do your job or how does that change your life from a sales specific nature? Yeah. So we're, we're, we're primarily doing video conferencing. Um, and you know, it's not the same as being face-to-face with someone. I, I don't think you have the opportunity to, you know, so much of doing business is the stuff that comes after the business, right? Or the stuff that comes before the business. So getting a bite to eat with someone and asking them about their family and learning about where they grew up. And I, I talked with someone today who uh, was born in Egypt and he came over to the States by himself when he was 25 years old and he's worked his ass off to get to the point he's at. And so much of business is that stuff. So much of sales is that stuff. And so I think the idea of having these like, you know, 30 minute Zoom calls to cram everything in, it's just not the, it's not the long-term solution. I do think it, it's not going to fully replace that type of process, but it's going to take a decent chunk out of it. Um, and so I'm really interested too to see how that plays out because I think you're always going to need in-person meetings and people value that. But obviously, in the short term, you can't. So it's like, you know, is that something that sticks? I am not quite sure. I, I don't. I don't know if it's going to completely go away. Right. I, I mean, another thing too, from a a sales specific perspective, I was thinking about is for people who are paid on commissions, right? So you make the sale, you get a, a certain percentage or a certain flat fee based on that. Uh, a lot of that is based on presenting directly to the client, you know, going out, knocking on doors, making cold calls, whatever you do. I guess you I suppose you could still call people, but I think we're going to see more of that shift towards, uh, you know, getting the, I guess what you would think of as shelf space on the internet. So, right. Getting uh, the right eyeballs and the right ads. And this kind of goes to my conversation I had with, um, with Nick on the last podcast, right. Uh, click through rates is kind of the, the monetization engine of companies that sell ads. And the reason people are, are willing to pay so much is because of the value of things like SEO or appearing on a banner on a frequently visited site. So this is a very long winded way of saying is, is succeeding in sales now more based on uh, how you can get to people virtually as opposed to being able to wine and dine them. Um. <laughs> Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. Um, I think a big thing in sales, the, the, if, you're a, if you're a veteran salesperson, the number one thing you're trying to do is ultimately win that conversation. So what I mean is the, the trickiest part of selling, in my opinion, is actually getting to the point where someone's like, look, I want to talk to you. 
and I want to give you 10 to 15 minutes of my time, right? That's the hardest part, getting to that point. Because once you get to that point, that's when instinct and expertise and professionalism comes in. And if you're a good salesperson, you can get that, that client to the point where they're excited to work with you and they're excited to buy from you. Um, so I think you're, there's going to be a tremendous shift and dependence on using technology to generate leads, generate opportunities, bring the level of interest to the actual salesperson. But I don't think it's going to revolutionize sales in the way that you buy from people you like. And I think about the, the, the biggest success stories I've seen in my career in sales and frankly, the biggest success stories I've had as a, as a, as a rep personally have come from building really strong relationships with people. You know, even I would say, I would go as far as saying friendships with people, you know, getting to the point where you learn about someone's family, you learn about, you know, what they're passionate about, you learn about what they need in their business, and then you come through as a person who's genuinely helping them. And it's a business transaction, but it's really a trust transaction. So I think, yeah, on a small transaction type of business, you don't need that sales professional. But I think on the bigger deals, you know, you care about working with someone you trust, right? And you're an entrepreneurial guy, Ben, right? Like if you're, if you start your own business and you're deciding you want to put, you know, 15% of your budget towards some sort of service, some sort of SaaS or some sort of, you know, marketing, you probably want to make sure you like the person you're spending with and you trust them because that's a pretty big investment on your end. Um, so I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's going to actually potentially be more important to have strong sales acumen in your business if you want to be, if you want to, you know, if you want to grow. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think some of that trust could potentially be built prior to the in-person conversation. What I mean by that is from an engineering perspective, a lot of companies now have very vibrant engineering blogs where they'll write about what they're working on, what technologies they're using different things they're doing in code. And I've seen this and, and heard this talked about in a way that's actually a kind of hidden recruiting tactic. It's, it's conceptually the same thing as people who write really long white papers that uh, rank highly in SEO. So you'll read the white paper and say, wow, like these people really know what they're talking about. Like I'd like to do business with them. So there's almost this like signaling theory that's yeah. built online. And I, I think that might be more pre prevalent now uh, because obviously people are, are spending more time in front of the computer. Totally. And you want, you want to, um, you know, the, the best type of lead gen is if you're a content creator or if you're someone who provides a lot of value for free and then someone just associates you with, oh, I want to talk to that person. They seem like they know their shit. Right. So I do think there's going to be a more, I think there's going to be more of an open field for, for branding yourself um, and attracting buyers to your, you know, your pipeline depending on what type of risk you want to take. I do have a, a pipeline question that's going to appear out yeah. of the blue, but I did, I had this on my list of things I wanted to ask you. So when I, I was researching a bit for our conversation, I saw the term MLS. So I think it's multiple listing services yeah. um, come up a ton in terms of how real estate agents work and then how Zillow directly or indirectly is involved with those agents. So what is MLS? And uh, how does that impact what Zillow is doing? Yeah, so MLS, if you think about it, um, before Zillow, 
if you want to do explore what was basically available in your market, you had to consult the MLS. That's the multiple listing service. Okay. And the multiple listing service is unique to each region. So every uh, community has its own MLS, but basically what this is, is a database that real estate agents can tap into that shows what's available on the market. Okay. Now what Zillow basically did is work with all these MLSs to pull directly from the feeds so that all the MLSs are now public, but they're public on Zillow. So you don't really need as the consumer, you don't need to leverage the MLS anymore because you're using Zillow. Whereas prior to Zillow, you would consult your local MLS in Somerville or Cambridge or wherever you are, and you would be able to see what's available. Okay. So again, you go back to this idea of gated information, shrouded information that you didn't necessarily have access to unless you worked with a real estate professional. Zillow's aggregated that and Zillow's made that public, right? So the MLSs are feeding their data into Zillow now, not because they want to, but because they have to. And the reason I say they have to is if you're selling a house, if you're selling your home or your parents are selling their home and the real estate agent comes up to them and says, hey, our MLS opted not to pull to Zillow because we fundamentally disagree with how Zillow does business. Well, your parents or you are going to say, I don't care. I want my home showing up on Zillow because I want people to see it, right? So it's this interesting, and that, that point exactly creates a lot of friction with the real estate community because they um, don't necessarily believe that Zillow's information to pull from. See what I'm saying? Yep. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Uh, the parallel I'm thinking about when you just described that is you think about independent bookstores that don't want to be on Amazon, but authors obviously would like to be on Amazon because they get more eyeballs on the books. And same with where you see how Uber or Lyft has disrupted the transportation market, right? There's something to be thought of in terms of consumers want the lowest transportation rates, but if you're a driver, you tend to prefer higher. So there's, I think all disruptive industries, there's this tension between producers and consumers and the, the third party marketplace because the, the third party marketplace that has a ton of information tends to be great for consumers and not so good for producers well well yeah and, and what i'll i'll get kind of meta with you for a second here if, you, if you'll roll with me on it but like a lot of industries pre-iphone pre-internet the real estate industry was the, the architecture of the real estate industry is geared towards real estate professionals, okay? So you talk about brokerages and agents and commission splits and MLS data. All of that is kind of in this playbook for how real estate professionals do business. Who is it not focused on? The actual person buying or selling their home, okay? So that's where there's a lot of friction coming from this is the real estate community can be a little bit up in arms with Zillow because their approach is, wait a second, you're pulling information that's ours. You're pulling our feed. You're pulling our, our data. And to Zillow's, you know, to Zillow's credit, the approach is kind of like, well, why shouldn't buyers and sellers just have this stuff at their disposal? Like what's, what's creating the, the disconnect between you or I looking at a home search and seeing what we want to see? Right? Like, why is that just designated towards a real estate professional when as 25, 30 years ago, yeah, it makes sense. The information wasn't out there, but now it is. So that kind of changes the game. 
yeah, the more information for consumers. As a consumer, I, I have to love it. I don't know though that it makes it easier for me to pull the trigger, the trigger on a big ticket item, right? Like if I'm buying a car or a house, yeah, you know, I can certainly get like the Carfax or all the home information or, or pull as many documents as I, I want to. But I think there's still this element of I'd like to see the thing in person. I'd like to talk to someone. I'd like to have a professional opinion before I trust myself to do something. Whereas I think for Zillow, the, the best thing that could possibly happen would be a cultural change where people trust the technology and trust the information and, and are very quick to say, yes, this is the house I want. This is the price I want. Let's do this. Well, let me, let me ask you a question. What if, what if you were at a point where you could actually browse Zillow on your own and you see a home that you really like that's being listed? Okay, well, now all of a sudden you can say, I want to reserve a private showing of this home. And so you push that button on Zillow and you have a three o'clock showing on a Thursday. So now you show up to that house and that house is empty, but there's a little lockbox and you show your Zillow app to that lockbox. And now you're walking around that house open by yourself, right? I very much buy that could happen. I think about investing specifically, which is the area I tend to know sort of well. And you think about uh, how Betterment or Wealthfront or the various robo-advisors have done how commissions are now zero. It's very common knowledge that index funds are essentially you know, close to 0% off the top now. And you know, an index fund that rebalances itself periodically it generally performs better than an actively managed fund. It's very pro-consumer, right? The consumer is paying fewer fees than ever and, it's, and getting almost, if not better, the same returns. The you know, market has been incredible the last two decades or so. So, I mean, that, that's the, as a person who loves technology, I think that's the vision, right? That you empower the consumer to be able to do things on their own um, without sacrificing any knowledge or, or doing harm to themselves. You know, the whole do no harm principle. So I think, yeah, maybe it's just I, difficult to wrap your mind around something where it, it's always been a guided process. I think, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to get too like, too crazy here, but there, there are changes so big sometimes they're hard to wrap your head around, right? Like there was a point when they moved from horse and carriage to Ford Model Ts, right? Like that was a time in society and culture when people were like, you're not, you're not going to drive cars down roads. We've always done it this way. But then all of a sudden, slowly you start to see the other side of it. And I, again, I think that's, that's really what I'm trying to get at with the point we're talking about right now. It's, there are ch changes happening in our society right now that I actually think may be bigger than we can even wrap our heads around. And we're not going to fully be able to process it until we can look back 5, 10, 15 years from now and say, holy shit, do you remember what we used to do before coronavirus came? We used to all cram on a subway every morning packed and it was this little tube that was underground and it would take us down to these big tall buildings that we'd all cram in and everyone would work next to each other and be on the phone and you'd clock in at nine and you'd leave at five and you'd get on that same tube and you'd go back to your little apartment in the city that's a concept that might seem crazy 15 years from now 10 years from now right but it's 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 what i guess what i'm saying is like when you think about and, and from an investment standpoint, when you think about being long on something, really being long on something, like what does that mean? It doesn't mean two or three years. It means like, how is this going to drastically change 
10 or 15 years from now? Like, what are we going to look back on and be blown away that we used to do? And so I think you're seeing it in a whole lot of industries right now. And it's really being accelerated because of the changes that the, the virus is, is bringing on. Awesome. I really wanted to riff on this theme with you because the popular thing I think among tech companies, management groups who are had just did first quarter earnings is, well, COVID has pulled the future 10 years earlier than expected. And I think the, the popular cartoon I keep seeing is which facilitated change at your company. It was it A, the CEO, B, the CTO, or uh, C, COVID-19. And of course, it's like 100% C. So I don't know. I, I was thinking about um, the CEO of Shopify was just on this podcast I listened to, and he was talking about how um, Shopify is pulling their entire roadmap um, and condensing it into the next couple of months because they see this as the opportunity to really expand market share and to do some things that wouldn't have been possible pre-COVID because there are just so many eyeballs on the site now. There are so many store owners who are either expanding the size of their store or just new uh, owners listing on listing stores, period. So, I mean, it must be fascinating now to be at a company that's, that's just made its, uh, it's made its name being disruptive on the internet. And now is the time when the internet is gaining more and more steam. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I I had this, I had this thought earlier today. It's kind of like, have we all been living in this lie that we needed to come to the office and work as usual since really the advent of the internet? Like, has this just been way overdue snow that we needed to shake from the branches for a long time, right? Like you're seeing most companies, and I I say most companies, you know, from a very, from a tech perspective and from the perspective of working for Zillow. So I don't mean to loop in everyone here, but it seems like most companies are doing like pretty well um, whose industries aren't vastly impacted by this. So like Zillow hasn't seen a dip in productivity. Our sales are, are, are churning along. Our activity still there. You're not seeing a major dip. My little brother works for Yelp. Um, they, they had to lay off a couple people, but they're still selling. They have their structure set up. So it makes you wonder, it's like, is this virus just exposing what we could have been doing for a while, but now that we finally have to, it's like, okay, reluctantly, yeah, did we really need all that? Probably not. You know? It's a lot of food for thought. I, uh, I would bring you back to the, the quote your, uh, your other brother had on this podcast, which is, I'm going to get it wrong, it's the David McCullough one. Um, History is the antidote to the, the hubris of the... Uh, uh, present present yes yeah. so I, I mean i love that question but i i tend to side with nick and with you on this one that there's no hubris here uh this this is actually for real um i mean I, I think the facts are indisputable right like if there are going to be claims that productivity is just as high without the same office space then you're, you're going to see more and more companies moving to the twitter model where it's work from home indefinitely yeah, and, and maybe maybe what you see is companies like Zillow and Twitter and, and Facebook, maybe you're doing a quarterly retreat where once a, once a quarter you have your whole staff show up at some sort of resort or, or outdoor retreat center and you do a lot of team building and you, you work on your culture and 
you know, you have yearly uh, or annual all hands where you have an offsite. Like, I think those are the type of things you're going to start to see way, way more because I think interpersonal connection is important. Like, we're not hermits as human beings, right? Most people are not going to be comfortable saying, yeah, I'm good just staying in my home indefinitely. But I think if you're a business owner, like, and you're paying six grand a month on cold brew on tap and lucky charms that your employees can get, like, that doesn't seem like a smart expense anymore. Yeah, it's really funny to think that WeWork was considered a very viable business, you know, two, even two years ago, even last year before all this stuff happened with SoftBank. But it seemed like there was an in-between period, right? Where it was like, oh, we just need satellite offices. And now we fully moved to, we don't need satellite offices at home. We just, we just need our work set up and our, our set of practices that make us productive. Yes. Yeah, so, so again, it goes back to this idea of like, you know, what is, and I think this is something you and I can riff on all day, but what is, what is the extent of this trend and what does this do to the fabric of urban life as we know it? And therefore, what does it do to the fabric of the culture of our country as we know it? So like, you know, is it still a, a long sought after goal that you graduate college and you move to a big city, a Chicago or a New York, an LA, Boston or San Francisco? Like if your office isn't there and you don't have to be there, well, why do you move there? And if you don't move there, where do you move now? Right? Like do you, you, you certainly probably don't want to go live back with your parents. So do you have a rise of these ancillary markets that now all of a sudden skyrocket places like North Carolina and places like Tennessee and places like Providence, Rhode Island, where they may not be the big ticket city, but Hey, there's a bunch of cool restaurants and concerts come through and there's a lot of culture here. And more importantly, young people are here. So I want to be here, but I'm not going to pay the same price I would for a big city. And so I think that's where, that's where the, the country, the, the dynamic of the country can get really, really interesting all of a sudden where Maybe you have more of these mid-tier pockets. Um, and then what does that do to real estate? Again, does that, add, does that spread out real estate all over the country in a, in a more you know, interesting dynamic than it did before with this urban, uh, you know, urban condensed environment? Yeah, and Zillow does seem perfectly positioned for that trend, right? If you're someone looking to move to one of those pockets, say I live in Palo Alto and I realized I could get a house in Columbus, Ohio for the same price that's 18 times bigger. But I don't know anything about Columbus, right? I, I want the 3D tour. I want information on surrounding markets and prices. I want all the data that the Zillow platform can give me. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that develops. I want to close this out with a, a conversation I know you and I are both looking forward to having, which is the opportunities that are going to come out of COVID that, that already exists. I mean, I heard a great quote from Mark Cuban the other day, which was the, the landmark companies of the next 10 years, you know, the Airbnbs and the Ubers are going to be built right now. And in fact, like probably are in their infancy right now. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what those opportunities are. If, if there are companies that you're specifically thinking of that have a real chance yeah. here, uh, what those companies are going to be focused on it. And just what uh, what the landscape um, you know, during COVID and post COVID is going to look like? Yeah. Um, so a couple come to mind for me, and, and, and again, it's more of you know personal uh, 
personal experience and like what do I think is worthwhile investing in based on my own interest. Hold on one second. Let me let this cat out real quick. So I think um, one, one stock that I'm thinking a lot about and so is every other 20-something male in the country who's paid attention to sports in the last 15 years is Penn Gambling. Um, which just took on Barstool or just kind of merged with Barstool. And I know that kind of is like the, uh, you know, the common man's stock pick right now. But the reason I'm really intrigued by it is I think Barstool has built a unprecedented following in terms of basically capturing a generation of listeners, okay? And what, the reason I say that is, you know, I have friend, you're a Celtics fan. You're a Patriots fan. I'm a, I'm a Yankee fan. I'm a Ranger fan. Um, we both know Barstool. Okay. You, you, you may not be like the um, avid Barstool reader, neither am I, but we know about Barstool. And when a current event goes down, we're interested in what Barstool is saying about it. And so I think, I think Barstool has positioned themselves in this way where they have the audience. They have the audience. And when sports return, and they will, they have this basically like firm grip on the on the mindset of twenty somethings and thirty somethings throughout the entire country who are going to Barstool for entertainment, not just sports, not just news for entertainment. And so I think, you know, the fact that they position themselves with gambling, I think you're gonna see Barstool the brand and therefore Penn Gambling there's no reason they're not going to have their own casinos, which is already involved with, with Penn. There's no reason they're not going to have their own hotel in Vegas. Um, I could see Barstool, you know, becoming the, the front runner by far with sports gambling and that whole infrastructure, which is now just kind of moving to the mainstream. It's been in the closet, not the closet. It's been in the, it's been in the background for a while. So I, I don't know, man, I think, I think Barstool's ready to just, explode and i like pen a lot in that sense because i think you can get it on discount while sports are down right now um the other the other play i'm interested in and i know you and nick spoke about carnival crew so i won't go there but in a similar vein is i like the play on live nation too um for a couple of reasons so, so live nation basically is the the premier uh live music and entertainment brand out there and I think they have enough cash to survive this thing, whereas a lot of the independent um, venues, a lot of the independent uh, concert promoters, they're not going to be able to stomach six months to a year without revenue, whereas Live Nation is. And I think that when concerts come back, there's a very, there's a massive desire for young people, especially to gather with one another and listen to music and, and you know, that tribal instinct is not going to go away because of 18 months of social distancing. So I really like their position when they come back and that stock is on a, a massive discount right now. Yeah. I think their CEO, Michael Rapinoe just bought back a, a ton of stock or he, uh, he's been doing a lot of insider purchases himself. So I'm, I'm super interested in that as well. Uh, I guess like on the non-financial market side, let's just say on the, on the personal side, you know, obviously you have more opportunities now to just do whatever you want, whether it's like a passion thing. I know you're into photography. Um, now that you don't have like whatever it be, 30 minutes, an hour of commute time each day. 
So I guess like, what are you doing personally that that's different uh, because of COVID than you were before? Yeah. Um, well, I love that. I love that question. And I think, uh, I think this whole work from home and I've never done it before. So I know, I know Ben, like you've, you've been somewhat like had your, you've had your feet dipped in this for a little while, but I think being able to work from home is you have more time and energy and attention to focus on yourself, not just the work version of yourself. And I think that's really interesting. And and there's a lot of opportunity um, potential in that for not only like myself as an individual, but for, for our culture in general, people can indulge more and invest more in who they are outside of work, right? Because they're basically constantly outside of work. So maybe instead of commuting an hour and a half each day, you can take that online course that you never got around to, right? One thing I'm doing right now is I try and, I try and read a lot and you, know, you just only have so much time in the day, but I'm finding that I have an extra half an hour in the morning now to have a cup of coffee and read a book I normally wouldn't read. So maybe that means picking up some literature that I normally wouldn't take a swing at or take a crack at, but now all of a sudden I can read Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky and really absorb that and, and learn about myself and learn about the psychology of you know, morality and law and, and guilt and, and dive deep into those type of heady topics as opposed to just tuning out, going to my job, coming back, having a beer, making dinner and going to bed. And so I think like there's this opportunity to stop seeing your life as I have my weekends and my nights and I work during the week. No, it's like, who are you? What are you about? Right? Like, what are the things you want to focus on and grow in and become not just like, this is my occupation and everything else is the weekend and hanging out. Um, so I'm certainly trying to take advantage of that. And I, 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 I know you are too, Ben. Um, I think more and more people will. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe that's overly optimistic, but no, I totally agree. Yeah, I think this podcast for me has been the thing I've gravitated to it, and I think I've when I commute, I tend to listen to a ton of podcasts, but not necessarily of the same subject matter. I think when you're walking around in a totally quiet neighborhood, it's much easier to get into a, a more deep dive of, of a podcast. I mean, just like everybody else, I love Joe Rogan. I love Tim Ferriss. Uh, there's a one podcast called Invest Like the Best with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. That's that's similar. I mean, I was heavily influenced by that one. Um, I mean, he interviews all types of CEOs and investing types and hedge fund managers and private equity guys. Um, it's just a, it's great to hear someone's one to two hour conversation and just feel like you're a fly on the wall. Uh, I, I think podcasting is still very much in its infancy um, and it's great that like there are all these different platforms, just, just seeing that it's as easy as, you know, it took me maybe like 10 minutes to sign up and then publishing, finding all the audio mixing tools wasn't, wasn't that hard. So, I mean, I'm hoping the same, I think there's such an opportunity with this unstructured time to find any number of passion projects. And I think, as you said, those are all more valuable than commuting or trying to, to get into the green line at like, you know, six, 7am. Yeah. I think, first of all, like this podcast is awesome. And it's something again, like who knows if you would have been able to do this if not for COVID. And now all of a sudden you have a podcast, you're a host, right? Just like that. And I think do you maybe like put a bow on this thing, but the way I'm thinking about it is so many people associate 
their identity with their job, right? And, you know, think about the question when you ask someone, like, what do you do? That's like the first question you ask someone when you meet them. It's like, hey, where are you from? Cool, what do you do? And that question, what do you do? Like, I've always felt a little bit uncomfortable with it because like, what do I do? Well, I'm an enterprise sales rep at Zillow. Okay, that's my identity now? Like, that's, I'm Max, I'm from New York, I'm an enterprise sales rep at Zillow. Like, yeah, that's my job. I do that to make money, right? But that's not maybe who I am. That's not like my hopes and dreams and my passions and my, my what I want to dive into and focus on and how I want to grow. And so I think philosophically, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm getting too like, you know, big picture here, but I, I think we might see a little bit of change in that. And I think that freaks people out, honestly, because a lot of people take a lot of refuge in the fact that I'm a lawyer, I'm an attorney, I'm a salesperson, I'm an account manager, I'm an, I, I'm an account executive at Slack, right? Or I sell uh, camera equipment for Logitech or whatever it might be. It's like, is that what you want your identity to be? But it has been because of the work routine we've been in and the commute and, and the 40, 50 hours a week or whatever. But I think this is opening up the opportunity for a lot of people to really ask themselves like who am I and what am I all about and maybe this whole job identity is just a way I make money and maybe now I have some time to really become like the person I want to be um, and I think there's a massive like upside to that on a societal level I don't know I mean, I'll, go, I'll go deep philosophical on you if we're gonna kind of trade blows on what is the meaning of this whole thing so pre-covid there was a ton of time taken up by commute as we discussed, but also there was a ton of time taken up by let's get drinks after work. Let's go to this concert. Let's do this or that. I mean, the outside world, if you think about it is a set of diversions, which you can indulge in. You, know, you exchange money for experience to an extent you can do that on the internet. But one of the reasons the economy is crashing is there's just not as many virtual goods as there are physical goods and services. Um, depending on how you want to define it. I mean, that, that's semantics. Yeah, I'm with you. But I think as a result of not having these diversions, that, that time needs to be replaced. And, and there's simple answers like, okay, people will replace them with video games or reading or baking sourdough bread, which seems to have taken on a meme status of, of people right. wanting to do that. Right. But let's say this goes on for a year or two years. Um, obviously, some people are saying there's a hard stop because of the vaccine, but I think it's, it's not unforeseeable that this goes on for, you know, 100, 200 more days. Um, that's enough time, certainly. I mean, to, to develop a new hobby, to figure out that you want to do something that you didn't know you ever thought you were capable of. So, I, I mean, I think so many people get negative about COVID and just see this as a disruption and, and something that, um, you know, is, is blocking them from doing the real things they want to do. But in a way, it's like, this is the flow of life, right? This is, this is what we were given. So it's as meaningful and as part of, of who we are now is, I think, like a civil war, World War II. I mean, any parts of American history that are like the fabric of who we are. I mean, this is, this is a seminal moment and we're going through it right now. I love that so much. I love that you, I love that you just brought that up. And I'm going paraphr- to paraphrase a quote from... Uh, my college president uh, at Providence College, Father Stanley, 
and he was basically addressing the, he was addressing the seniors, the college seniors and talk about a group that got absolutely fucked from this whole thing. I think college seniors got it worse than anyone else. Um, but he was talking to them and he was basically addressing the class after delivering the news that they were not coming back to campus for their senior year. And he was also, he's retiring too. So like, there's all this emotional sentiment of like, this is my last year. This is your last year. But he talked about Lord of the Rings and he was basically like, look, there's a, there's a famous moment in Lord of the Rings when Frodo's like, I, I, Frodo basically is saying, I, I wish, uh, I wish the ring never came to me. Right. Like I didn't want, I, I didn't want the ring and Gandalf and I'm not going to, I'm not going to hit the quote perfectly, but basically Gandalf's like, you don't get to decide whether or not you get the ring, man. Like you fucking got it. Right. And I think the point is with, with this uh, crisis that what we're dealing with, like we can't re we can't rewrite this. We can't just like opt out of it. Like we're, we're in this right now. Like this is, you know, in, in, Christian terms, this is a cross that we're all carrying, right? Like, and you can either, I think, use it to become a way better transformed person and look back on this in 10 years and say, holy crap, like, thank God that, thank God that happened. Like, look what I became because of it, or look how I changed because of it. Or you can just spend the next, like you said, 100, 200 days sulking and bitching and wishing things were like they were on March 1st, 2019, and it's not coming back. So I think like exactly what you said in embracing this in a way that will transform you. It's like, you don't want to waste this moment um, because it might be the only thing we get like this in our entire life. Absolutely. You got to, I think you have to take what the defense gives you and what the defense has given you is a bunch of unstructured time. Right. I, I mean, I think in some ways, I'm not trying to trivialize it. I know it's, it's a curse for everyone. It's one of the most horrible things that has happened in our lifetime, but it, it is a blessing, I think, for figuring out what hidden interests or passions or, or fields of knowledge you might want to delve into. I mean, you're getting a ton of time back. Well, I think, yeah, ex exactly, exactly. You're getting a ton of time back, and I think that's making a lot of people very uncomfortable because it's forcing you to look outside of the framework and identity and ego association you've built with your typical day-to-day. -day. And, you know, if normally you were someone who worked at WeWork in Chelsea in Manhattan and you got your iced coffee at Starbucks every morning off the train and you went and grinded until six or seven o'clock at night and then you went to a soul cycle class after and came back and went to bed and that was who you were. Well, now you have to think a little bit outside the box, right? That's not, th those things are gone, it, basically indefinitely. So it's like, what do you do to replace that? And I think I, one of the challenging things about this moment is like, you, you do have to look inward and you have to really question, what am I about? Like, what are my weaknesses? What are my strengths? And basically like, what do I believe in right now? Like what type of what type of mark do I want to have on the world around me because of this? Um, and in that context, I agree with you. I think it's, I think it's pretty damn exciting um, because it's turbulent, right? Like life's not supposed to be easy. It's a choice. It's an adaptation. And in one sense, it's exciting, right? It's, 
uh, it's a huge opportunity to, to reinvent, to remake your routine, to rediscover things you, you're interested in. So yeah. And I think I'm, I'm excited, man. I think the, I think the, maybe we can end it on this, but um, you know, the most worthwhile, the, the most, the most worthwhile things to do and the moments in your life, I think when you feel the most accomplished are things or when you make it through shit, that's hard, right? When you can look back and be like, yeah, I conquered that. Or that was a really hairy situation that I, that I, that I made it through and it didn't kill me and I'm stronger because of it. And so this is a massive test for the whole world at the same time to, to figure this out. But the only way we're the only way is through, right? There's no shortcuts here. Like the only way we get through this thing is to endure it. And it's going to take as long as it's going to take, but there is another side. And I agree with what you're saying. It's like, how do you want to be defined when we come out of this and how do you want to make sure you didn't waste uh, waste a day here? So I'm, uh, I'm fired up in that sense. Amen, buddy. It has been a pleasure having you on the podcast. I'd love to have you back for a part two sometime, but uh, what a great conversation. And uh, yeah, thanks for being on. That was great. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Stock Talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations, market commentary, and more, visit postcoronastocks.com.